When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. A very good Sunday morning to you on this last day of July. I don't know about you. I'm I'm about ready to put July in the books. It was one hot month and one dry month for most of us. So uh, hoping that August is going to be a little better on both fronts. A little bit cooler I had an uncle who used to always say, well, at least in August, the nights start cooling down. And uh, <laughs> I hope it's early August instead of late August. But I know everybody out there is tired of the heat and tired of the drought. But uh, as, uh, oh, who's it? Malcolm Beck once said, if it weren't for the weather, what would we have to talk about? So we've got gardening to talk about is what we're talking about this morning. We're going to start with Hank and Clint and Elaine. I mean, there's one line open. You better grab it if you want to get in early, 210-599-5555. And let's just get started with those questions. Uh, Hank's up first. Good morning, Hank. Good morning. How are you today? Off to a good start. Uh, not doing quite as well as these two black labs that say, we ought to be outside playing, Daddy. Why are we outside playing? But other than that, uh, it's a very good morning. Yeah. yeah I already worked up good sweat this morning. <laughs> That'd be good for you. Yeah. I know you've answered uh, this question probably more than a thousand times but sago palms yeah after uh after you cut cut one off what's the procedure so you're taking a one of the little pups one of the little round balls with a couple of fronds off the base of the plant yes just uh take probably a one gallon container fill it with potting soil set that uh pup down on top of it and in some way, anchor it to the soil. What I like to do is take little, two short little sticks or pieces of bamboo stake or something like that and just put them like a big X on top of it because you want to hold that pup in place so that it can get its roots established. You don't want it rocking around or breaking off the new roots as soon as they start to form. And uh, it's been a long time since anybody asked that question, so I'm glad you did because this is this is the time of year to do it while the Soil's still very warm because that pup should start putting out new roots almost immediately. But no special magic. I think I would put it in bright shade. I wouldn't put it in real hot sun until it gets some roots going. But um, that's about all there is to it. That's probably going to take you about two minutes today. So it's not going to greatly increase your (laughs) workload, at least. Unless you do like I helped a friend with one. Oh, a few years back, and I think we took 31 pups off of that plant, and that that turned into a little bit more of a project. But if you're just taking one or two off, that's that's going to be very little work for you today. Well, let me ask you this: Can you do it into the soil, into the ground? I would not. Um, I think if you do it in a pot, you've got about a 99% chance of it doing well. I think if you went directly into the soil, you probably have about a 75% chance of it doing well. So putting it in a pot is virtually a guaranteed thing. Putting it in the soil, not so much. So you'll probably get away with it. 
But uh, if the dog bumps into it or somebody drags a hose over it or for any reason it gets disturbed or um, it doesn't get watered as quickly, and if your ultimate plan is to put it out in the sun, obviously I would not try to go into the sun, you know, directly. If you're going to go directly into the soil with it, uh, it would need to be in a fairly shady area because that sun is still so bright it would dehydrate it and probably kill it before the plant could get some roots established. But if you plan, if you have a place in the shade where you plan to put it and leave it, then I guess it would be okay to give it a try. But here, here's the thing. You, you might say, well, I'll start it out in the shade and then I'll dig it and move it somewhere else. The problem is that a, a uh, cycad, like a sago, is just like a true palm. And if you cut a root on that plant, it's going to die all the way back to the base of the plant and then start coming out again. So you'd really be subjecting it to uh, a lot of stress to force it, in effect, to put on a root system twice. So right. unless there's some you know, real strong cause to put it directly into the ground, I'd, I'd get it started in a pot and then plant it in the ground. The thing about transplanting... We only do it in the warm, warm parts of the summer because that's when the root system will grow actively. But transferring them from a pot to the ground, you can do that 365 days a year. So it's not like you're going to start it in a pot and then have to wait, you know, until next summer to plant it out. As soon as it's got some roots on it where you can slip it out of the pot, put it in the ground without breaking up those roots, it doesn't matter whether that's the 1st of October, the 1st of December, or the, you know, 1st of March. So, uh if, if that's concerning you, then don't let that be a deterrent to starting it out in a pot. Well, generally, how long does it take to to get roots uh, um, established enough to to be able to put it in the ground? You know, how probably, long should it be in the pot? Probably six or eight weeks. It okay. could stay in the pot for a couple of years, but probably six or eight weeks. How many how many fronds is this uh, little pup already put on its? Uh, uh, summer batch of fronds and have they hardened off? Yeah, and it's uh, well, it's been uh, it's been out for I don't even know a year, year and a half, mm-hmm. and and this this thing is really it's it's pretty good size and it uh-huh. probably has I didn't count them but it's uh, eight or ten fronds. Okay, on it. I if it is that big, does it have any roots at all? Will it have any roots at all when you separate it from the mother plant? I, I I don't think so. Okay, depends, I I would deep, I you know remove all but about three or four fronds because the leaf surface area, the more leaf surface area you have, the more transpiration and therefore the more water loss you have. So uh, it's going to the you want to have some foliage on there, some leaves on there, so it can carry on photosynthesis and go on you know doing all the things it does to support itself. But it's, mm-hmm. it's like taking a cutting. You don't want to have a great big cutting with a lot of leaves on it, which are going to dehydrate things. Um, you right. want to leave a few fronds on it. But if it, had, if it had eight, I'd probably leave three or four at the very most. And uh, like I say, it's, it's probably six, eight, ten weeks. It's going to be well-established and can then be you know moved anywhere you like it. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. I sure appreciate all the information. Well, great question, Hank. I appreciate the call this morning. You get out and have a wonderful Sunday. Thanks. You as well. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. (laughs) Goodbye. All right. uh, Next in line is our friend Clint. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How's it going? Oh, off to a good start. A little bit of clouds out there. It's not a bad morning. I 
like uh, like Hank, I got some work done before I came in and sat down and put the headphones on. But uh, it's going to be another hot afternoon, so it's uh, it's just a it's just the last day of July, and uh, maybe things will change in August. I certainly hope so. Change for the better in August. I better put it that way. <laughs> I, I'm I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Yeah. Last time we talked, I was going to try and experiment with the Captain Jack Spinifat Spinifat right. and mixed it up with some. Um, uh, chicken scratch. Uh huh. Now the the colony I that loved the chicken scratch took it down right uh-huh. down the bat. Not not a problem. The other colonies just t- totally ignored it. So uh-huh. the only thing I noticed is um, they may be moving a little bit slower, but I haven't had a knockout. How long does it does it take that spinosad to kick in? Well, the spinosad will probably. Um, you know, it's going to kill the ants that are in direct contact with it probably in a day or two. But here's here's the, the thing that may keep it from being totally successful. Ants, they, it's kind of like they go shopping at the grocery store for what they're going to take back to the mound. And they're going to put the best of the best aside to feed the queen, and then the rest of it goes into the general population's food supply, so to speak. So... They haven't identified your chicken scratch as as being good enough for the queen, so to speak. So you're going to be gradually killing the ants that eat it. But unfortunately, the queen may go on making more more and more new ants. That's what they do with something like the come and get it bait. And I have no idea what it is they use, but they they use what is called a preferred food as the what they're going to put their spinosad on. And that way, the ants are going to pick it up take it down and immediately feed it to the queen. And then, of course, once the queen's dead, then the whole mountain gradually dies out because nobody else can make new workers. So that may be what's going on is that you're killing more ants than you realize, but you haven't gotten rid of the queen, so there are more ants being produced almost daily. So you're knocking the population back, but you haven't hit them with a knockout punch at this point. Knockout. Now, I've been also uh, working on that Sluggo Plus. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, one thing I did notice, <clears throat> the mounds I treated, they are moving a whole lot slower mm-hmm. than the amount of or, or newly found mounds and stuff. So I'm thinking it might be having some effect. Yeah, I've been uh, told that on, on, yeah, on the cut ants, yeah. which is what we're using that on, it may take up to a month or six weeks before you really see uh, see that pretty much knocked out. So that doesn't surprise me too much. And it's, it's kind of hit and miss if they want the Slogo Plus. I just wish they made a plum tree flavored Slogo Plus. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Well, I'm I know that they you know they work on these things and they they're ever changing, trying to find something that uh, that works even better. But uh, you would think that they would choose whatever plants are the primary target of the leaf cutters to put the bait on. But, you know, they may be making it in a different part of the country where they've never grown a plum tree. But um, if, if in an ideal world we'd have a company that made a product specifically for Texas uh, and other products for the rest of the world, because nobody's quite like Texas, <laughs> I say that jokingly, it'd be nice if they had a an eastern variety, uh, formulation a western formulation and a northern and a southern of course there are not that many cut ants in the northern part of the country but it would be nice if they had kind of like we have different flavors of i don't know breakfast cereal or 
Jello or whatever else, uh, if they had a, a flavor for a regional area based on what the ants, what their primary food choice was in that area, that would be an ideal situation. But uh, all we can do is, is try to demand it, and maybe maybe somebody out there will respond to it. Yeah, was kind of, now, uh, the on those cut ants, is each opening its own separate colony, or do they head no. down to one no. big massive? They have a big underground chamber, and uh, there may be multiple. There may be 8 or 10 or 12 openings going down to that one chamber. Okay. Yeah, I noticed on one of them I put the Sluggo Plus. They're not coming out of that no more, but there's other ones that popped open or or i just recently found so i guess they yeah. just shut down that entrance for some reason ah uh, they do that harvest ranch do the same thing it's always interesting to me after a, a big rain sometimes they reopen the you know original tunnel and sometimes the new one pops up some distance away so uh knock on wood we're not as troubled with uh leaf cutter ants and the harvester ants i don't worry about they're uh uh, you know, they're part of an important food chain out there for some reptiles and things like that. But the, uh, the leaf cutters, yeah, they, that's kind of typical for what they do. They're really interesting, even trying to fight how they adapt to stuff. The ones that love the chicken scratch totally ignored the Sluggo Plus. So I had to move the yeah. chicken feeding station about 100, yard, uh, 100 feet away, so once they got rid of that, then they went for the Sluggo Plus. And... It's, it's been interesting. Uh, we saw, and, and again, this is not leaf cutters, but harvester ants, we suddenly started noticing them taking a different path than they ordinarily take, and all of a sudden there were not tens, there were not hundreds, there were probably thousands of ants headed off in a different direction, and went to investigate what on earth they have found, and they found the old seed holes underneath a bird feeder. And you would not believe the number of ants that converged on that to haul away all those old, mainly thistle seed holes. I don't think they were getting, you know, the they, they were getting the holes after the birds had, you know, taken a little heart out of it. But it's just once they found it, it's like they just mobilized an entire army to go after it. And uh, it's funny, you go out in the morning, there'll be just a column, not a column, because they're not walking in their same footsteps. There's going to be a, a pack of ants moving, and then about one in the afternoon when it gets real hot, you don't see an ant anywhere. And then about five in the evening, when it starts cooling down a little bit, the masses are back. So it's ant ecology, well, insect ecology and nature in general is fascinating to watch for people that keep their eyes open, but... Most people are just, they're, they're looking up instead of looking down, and they're missing out on a lot of interesting things. It was also kind of uh, kind of funny. I thought, well, I'll try some of that come and get it just to see what happens. You know, those uh-huh. fire ants found that almost in an instant and converged yep. on that before they could even mess with it. Well, and that's now, what I say. That, 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 that's that, that preferred food stuff. That's, that's putting out the candy in front of the teenager and uh, he's going to grab it before he goes for the plate of Brussels sprouts. Right. Now, uh, second question, I have a friend that found some type of new bug that uh, they found in their cabinets. Not quite sure what it was, but he brought me a sample. And I don't know what it was, but it was in their kitchen. And it's a little bitty tiny thing, kind of a shiny back. And would sit there, wouldn't move a lot of times, but if you touch it, and then it would move. Any idea what that would be? <clears throat> You've only narrowed it down to about a hundred thousand possibilities. A hundred thousand. Does it? Does I it walk? Does, oil on it. 
Yeah, does it walk? No, does it, it does jump? Walk. It no, uh, it's, it's walking. Okay. It's about the pencil size, tenth of a pencil size, real tiny. Yeah, I, it's almost certainly a beetle of some sort, but uh, Charles Darwin's comment was, uh, the good Lord must have had an inordinate fondness of beetles because he made so many of them. There's something like 100,000 different species of beetles, and that would be my guess as to what you're looking at. The the shiny back, uh, the fact that it walks instead of hops, um, I, that, that says beetle to me, but I guess sure can't go beyond that because I do not claim to be an entomologist, much less a beetle specialist. I told him to try the orange orange oil and stuff, so I haven't heard back yet. Yeah, I think yeah. about everything anyway. Yeah, I, that's probably your best bet. Or a little hand vacuum cleaner would be a good place to start if uh, you don't have too many of them. Uh, I would. What I would do is I would check, you know, if you have containers of cornmeal or flour or you know biscuit mix or anything like that. Uh, that's where so many of them get started, and um, you know you'll, you'll you'll wind up sifting that, or more likely just disposing of it. But the first place I would look would be you know flour and cornmeal and uh, any kind of biscuit mix, pancake mix, anything like that, and see if that's where that's the little guy might have. Store, yeah, I didn't think about that one. So yeah, yeah. All right, well, I sure appreciate your time. Well, appreciate the call always, Clint. You get out and have a good weekend and a good week. And let me get a break out of the way, and we'll come back and talk to Elaine. Right now, get to talk about Rhonda's Nature's Way. And uh, just yesterday, I was talking to somebody that was having, you know, some of those, you know, getting a little older issues with a little bit of pain, with a little bit of difficulty sleeping. And I said, don't go to your doctor. This doesn't sound like a medical emergency. It sounds like you need to go find something natural where you don't have to just keep refilling a prescription and hoping for the best. Rhonda's Nature's Way is where I send people when... You know, you've got all kinds of different issues, and you're looking for natural solutions for them. Nobody knows more about it than Rhonda and her staff. And she does many things besides just provide the very best in vitamins and supplements and salves and creams and things like that. She offers uh, procedures, so to speak, like the red light therapy, the beamer therapy. Your doctors will tell you how great those things are. Reflexology does most of her mornings, uh, most of her appointments early morning. And uh, foot bath detox are just all kinds of things that she can do to improve your quality of life. And let me tell you, if you're dieting or planning to start on a diet, you need to check out some of the things that she has that are very, very diet friendly, but still taste really good. It's just a great store to visit. If you're working out in the heat, I certainly hope you'll go see her about one of the your favorite flavor of the Ultima, because that's the best electrolyte solution I found. To get the electrolytes you need without the sugars and things that you don't need. Rhonda's Nature's Way is closed on Sundays, but open the other six days. Southside stores over on Southwest Military, Northside store in the shopping center there at the corner of I-10 and Callahan. I was in there Friday, spent a nice visit with Rhonda, as a matter of fact. Anyway, it's a wonderful place and a great way to feel better naturally. Rhonda's Nature's Way. All right, looks like Elaine and Diane are going to be my next two callers. Got some open lines, so grab one while they're available. 210-599-5555. We say good morning, Elaine. How are you today? Good morning from Lavernia. Well, good morning. Um, I have put in okra in place that I've never had okra before. Mm-hmm. I've actually created a raised bed that's new this year also. But um, the leaves are falling off my okra. What's what's going on with that? 
probably getting a little dry. It's hard to, uh, really, it would be hard to give okra too much water, especially if it's in a raised bed. You're also, if it's a new bed, you're really going to need to double up on your fertilizing, probably use it about twice as strong and twice as often as you have in places where you've grown okra before. But if the plants are coming up, and, and it's probably lower leaves that are dropping. Yes. They've gotten a little okay. too dry at some point. Not to worry. They'll keep on growing and producing probably on into late September. So I just increase your watering, increase your fertilizing, and you should do just fine. Okay. Well, I have been extra fertilizing because yeah. of it being new baby. So. Okay, that's all I needed to know today. Well, I think that'll solve that little problem, and uh, enjoy your next batch of gumbo. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Elaine. Goodbye. All right, next up is Diane. Good morning, Diane. Good morning. Good morning. I've got an actual water question for you. Okay. Um, I, uh, I've been getting black water, and I live up the road from you. And I've asked all my neighbors, and none of them have ever had it. And so I called Cow Creek, Uh and Uh the gentleman that I talked to actually lives across the road from me. And he said he had it. He had the black water. And I'm I'm in the process of getting a new water softener, Uh and I collected some of that black water, and I was wondering if you could tell me where's the best place to get that water tested for manganese. Well, I would do a general water test and uh, call Cow Creek back. Uh, ask for Heath. Heath Hoffman, that is... Uh, to. <laughs> okay. Heath is an incredibly, incredibly talented uh, man that does so much for the district. But uh, Heath, we, we test water in uh, several different of our monitor wells uh, on a fairly regular basis. And I want to say it's somewhere up in comfort that we do. But uh, give Heath a call and just uh, tell him what you're wanting to do, and he will definitely put you in touch with the right person. Okay. Uh, Now, I've been told by a couple of people it's bacteria because the water is sitting in the pressure tank and getting hot and growing bacteria. I. We used to only see it maybe once every few years, and it right. would, like, spit out the bathtub water, and then it uh-huh. would clear up. Well, now I'm seeing it, like, every six months or so. My, my question to you would be, and uh, did he talk to you, or did it actually come out to your home? He just talked with me. Okay. Uh, what you need to do, and this will all depend on just how your well is set up, is if you have a way to draw some water, to take a water sample as it comes out of the well before it goes into your pressure tank or your holding tank, that's going to tell you a whole lot because uh, we're we're more concerned uh, with whether there's a problem in the well. Now, we occasionally get wells contaminated with E. coli. Normally, it's not a big problem. And um, even if you have a pretty substantial problem, you can shock it with hydrogen peroxide. You don't even have to go to chlorine. But the the first question we want to answer is, uh, is the problem with the water when it comes out of the well or something happening to it after it goes into your pressure tank and or your holding tank? So that's going to be, you know, number one question. And... Um, uh, the the same lab that tests your water for 
you know, all the different micronutrients will test for bacterial contamination as well. But um, you kind of have to figure out where the problem is before you know what and how to treat it. And once again, and for most purposes, uh, we don't have to go to the strong chlorine products that we once did to take care of these problems. Uh, hydrogen peroxide will do it, and if you need a strong hydrogen peroxide, you can get peroxide up to 37%. And I just personally would much rather be using hydrogen peroxide than chlorine because it does the same thing. But first thing is to figure out where the problem is occurring, whether it's in the water as it comes out of the ground or whether it's in your system after the water you know, is moves into that. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Now, would Heath be able to do that? Because I, I, I'm actually Pipe Creek. Uh-huh. Are, you're in Bandera County? Yes, sir. Well, you're kind of outside of, uh, you know, Cal Creek is uh, the our paid staff, those of us that serve as directors, <laughs> make zero for doing it. We do it just because we're deeply interested in water. But uh, we're not really... Um, it's not in our charter, so to speak, to operate outside Kendall County. Heath will happily answer every question you have and can probably tell you exactly where to look. And as a matter of fact, if I were, if it were my well, I would be taking a two water samples, one I'm out of my, because I just have a holding tank. I don't have a pressure tank. I have a 15,000-gallon holding tank. But I would probably take be taking a water sample directly you know, where it's pumped out of the ground, and then I would be taking a water sample from the holding tank, uh, and then that's going to tell me a whole lot. You do have a groundwater district in Bandera County, and, uh, of course, they're not quite as good as we are, I say <laughs> with tongue-in-cheek, but um, they're the ones that you're spending money to support, and they would probably be able to do that for you, but uh, Heath can probably, and then you know, Heath and Micah both know everybody in every groundwater district surrounding Kendall County. And Heath can probably tell you who to talk to at your Bandera groundwater district. And then they'll be the ones okay. that can make the determination as to whether they can do that for you or not. Okay, yeah. They were even, some, somebody had said, well, it's your pressure tank that the bladder is deteriorating. So I had the pressure tank replaced and the sacrificial anode in my hot water heater mm-hmm. I had replaced. And... You know, it just every now and then, it's yeah. still happening. So, well, you know, is there an odor associated with it, or is it a principally a yeah. color issue? I have sulfur smell. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that could easily be your hot water heater. Um, there's not a lot of problem with sulfur in most of our groundwater. Uh, you're probably pulling it out of. Uh, do you know how deep your well is? Uh, Five hundred and sixty-two. Okay, so you're you're almost certainly in the lower part of the middle trinity, possibly in the lower trinity, and uh, aquifer, and uh, there's not much of a sulfur contamination issue there. So my guess is it's probably your water heater, but it's a good idea periodically to get your water tested anyway. And uh, Heath will certainly spend as much time answering your questions as you need. We we offer that as a service to anybody who lives in the hill country, but actually physically coming out and running a camera down a well or doing something like that we're pretty much pretty much limited to uh to the borders and you just on the other side of the line you need to you need to find a way to move yeah, to kendall county and then we can take good care of you <laughs> well my daughter was smart enough to move there <laughs> yeah there you go well diane let me know okay. what you find out i'll be very interested to hear what the problem turns out to be and um i know he'll be happy to help you every way he can and, and just get him to give you the name of the folks with uh 
with the Bandera Groundwater District that can most likely actually help you with some of the process itself. Okay. Thank you so much for all your information. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Certainly. Bye. All right. Let's take a break here, and then we will move down the list. It looks like uh, next in line for me to talk about is going to be Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. And uh, I don't remember a year, and obviously I've been doing this for a lot of years. I don't remember a year that we have seen as many unusual, sometimes hard to explain things happening in the landscape as we have this year. Well, most of them are explainable, but they're they're just not simple, and they're they're due to the very unusual weather conditions. So we've had through the summer. If you would like some help in figuring out any problems that you're having in your landscape, Sam Sinderly has got to get in touch with. Many, many people have him sort of on a retainer, so to speak, and he comes out every week or every month or every six months, whatever it needs, and just walks the landscape and talks to him about what needs to be done. Uh, he does some services like compost tea application. Not going to mow your yard or trim your trees for you, but he's he's bringing his brain along, and that's the most important thing he has to offer you because he's been doing this well over 30 years, always solving problems organically. If you need help, well, first thing I do is go to his website, which is greengroworganics.com. Take a look at the services. Take a look at all the happy people on there. And if you think it's right for you, give him a call. Set up a consultation. Be sure you understand any charges up front. And if you're like most people, you're going to find he's the greatest ally you'll have when it comes to getting your landscape through trying times, whether it's hot, cold, or just the usual Texas conditions. That's Sam Sitterly and his business, Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to back to gardening on a pretty nice Sunday morning out there. And this last day of July, you're going to talk to Rosa and Paul and Mike are my next three callers. Rosa is up first. Good morning, Rosa. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. It's going to be a beautiful day out there. Just another warm one. Well, you always are, so that's great. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, let's see, three questions. One was my plumeria. I've Uh never had this before. Right where the new leaves are coming out, it's coated white. Yeah. I mean, it's just not growing. It's you, you, well, it's not growing much because of the very high temperatures. It's what we call the compensation point. And the plants are trying so hard to stay alive that they just don't have much left over to grow. It should go back to its normal growth and blooming in the fall. But what you have there is probably. Well, it could be a leaf hopper, could be cottony cushion scale, could be mealy bugs. In any case, I would get some of this product called Spinosad Soap. It's a combination uh-huh. of Spinosad and insecticidal soap. You don't want to use it in the hot part of the day, but morning or evening, like if you sprayed it one evening and sprayed it again the next morning, you should totally take care of the problem. It won't be harmful to people or pets or your beautiful plumeria. Well, how about the orchid? Now, a little orchid that I have, only one leaf seems to be coated with a white stuff, too. I would spray it as well. Again, don't do it in the sun and don't do it in the hot part of the day. But uh, this is one of the insects that we're seeing more of this summer than I've seen in the past 15 years. So, uh, yeah, probably have the same thing on both plants. Look carefully. Uh, The main things that's going to hit are going to be hibiscus, plumerias, 
Uh, orchids and oh, things like Jutropas are also very susceptible to it. But uh, the good news is it's, it's pretty easy to control with a totally non-toxic substance. Okay, and just one more thing. Do you know the vents for my air conditioner come up from the floor? Uh-huh. And ants have been coming up through it. So I put orange oil all around it, which it stops it for a while, and then after a while they're back up again. I was they, wondering what I could do for that. I would go outside, and I would scatter some of that uh, what's called come and get it. It's the ant uh-huh. bait that takes care of uh, mainly fire ants, and but that's probably what's coming in, and the ants are coming in looking for water. It is so dry outside Many people are finding uh, ants coming inside, under the windows, under the doors. It's uh, I've had a problem with them, but uh, you can just scatter some, come and get it around outside. That'll kill the ants before they get into your home. Do you think they have a mound or something underneath the house? No, ma'am, that's not likely. They uh, okay, good. rarely do you ever see that. If it was anywhere close to the foundation, you would be seeing a big mound of of dirt out along the foundation because they they have to have a place to to put all that dirt they take out when they when they do their excavating. Oh. So oh, okay. I, I can't say I've ever seen a fire ant mound under a home, even an old pyramid beam uh, built home like mine. Oh, wonderful! Well, thank you so much. I always appreciate all the advice you give. Thank you so much. And I always enjoy hearing from you. So you get out and have a good Sunday. <laughs> Thanks, Rosa. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Ah, uh, Paul's next in line. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Off to a good start. How about yourself? Doing wonderful. Uh, hey, look, I'm looking to put in some uh, some blueberry bushes. Or not blueberry, I'm sorry, blackberry vines. <laughs> good. That's going to be a lot more successful for you. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, so I picked up some brazos, and I have some peach trees. Uh-huh. And I was kind of wanting to. I was kind of wanting to put them between the peach trees, you know, with a trellis. Would, yeah, would I run into any trouble doing it? No, okay. uh-uh. Just uh, you might get scratched while you're picking your peaches if you've got brazos. That's the thorniest blackberry in the world. If you, uh, um, if you decide to plant any more, uh, there, there's some others that give you uh, – I like one called Roseboro. And it's sometimes spelled R-O-S, sometimes spelled R-O-S-C, but Roseboro, oh, I guess it's sometimes spelled B-O-R-O, B-O-R-O-U-G-H, depending on which, uh, which non-literate person decided to do the tags. But uh, it is a big berry. It has plenty of thorns, but let me tell you, Brazos, old, very dependable berry, but it's a little smaller berry, and it, it comes well armed with those thorns. So, uh, yeah, just put it, put your... Uh, your blackberries in a place where you're not going to have to work too close to them while you're working on your peach trees. The other thing, and I don't, have you ever grown blackberries before? No. Okay. Well, your your plants are going to grow up on your trellis, but they are also going to produce plenty of new plants, several new plants a year, and those will gradually start coming up further and further, you know, away from where you originally planted them. So. Uh, some people just leave them alone and get sort of a blackberry thicket, which, of course, takes up a bigger area. Other people will dig and transplant those little, uh, oh gosh, what do we call them? It's sort of an underground rhizome that uh, the, the blackberry plants produce, uh, usually late spring. So just keep in mind that you're going to have a, a pretty good thorny area out there, and it's going to be bigger than it will be initially when you first plant your plants. So uh 
just, you know, so long as it's, is you're not going to get excessively poked or scratched or cut up by it, go for it. As long as it's good and sunny, as long as you can provide plenty of water, blackberries are one of our best crops for summertime in South Texas. So if I plant them about six feet apart, they'll eventually fill in. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. And, and keep in mind, since you haven't grown blackberries before, blackberries, the berries that you get next spring will be on the wood that grows this fall. It's not going to be next spring you're going to get a bunch of new growth coming up around your plants. That new growth is not what's going to produce the berries next spring. The berries are going to be coming out on the old growth. So each uh, early summer when when your plants have finished their producing, you want to go through, identify those old canes because they're not going to produce again, and put on your heavy gloves and cut those out. If you cut out the old canes, leave all the new ones that grew next spring because those are the ones that are going to produce berries the following year. But if you can do that, if you can go through and thin out uh, the berries that have produced each time at the end of the productive season, you'll keep a much healthier and a much more manageable blackberry patch. And prepping my soil prior to sticking them in the ground, a little uh, chicken manure and some compost and uh, plenty of water. Uh, plenty of water, and I would uh, add some green, dry, organic fertilizer, Medina, Meister Grow, uh, Nature's Creation, any of those companies. Go ahead and get some of that stuff in the ground. You're never going to cause any dehydration or burning problems with them, and blackberries are heavy feeders. So uh, in addition to your compost and chicken manure, I'd probably add a little bit of, uh, you know, something like, I, I guess one I, well, I'm really pretty familiar with all three of those companies, but their basic products, they add so much to them, so much humate, so much iron, so much zinc. Your chicken manure is a good basic nitrogen source, but uh, it doesn't have the complete package of nutrients that uh, a good organic fertilizer based on chicken manure is going to have. So chicken manure is a great start. But I'd, I'd sure add some uh, growing green or Texas tea or you know premium lawn food one from one of those companies because you'll just um, blackberries they need a little extra zinc they need a little extra manganese uh, when you're just putting a little bit of that commercial product on you're going to meet all those needs it certainly wouldn't hurt if you want to have the best blackberry patch in town you might get a little package of azomite a z o m i t e it's the most complete micronutrient source out there. And uh, might add some of that as well, and uh, you're not going to have to add that more than once every ten years or so. But I just I want oh. the soil to be as good as possible because I do love blackberries. Okay, I, isomite. Okay. Yeah, isomite. It's uh, it, it's like green sand on steroids. Green sand's got iron and zinc and a couple of things in it. Isomite has almost a hundred different micronutrients and compounds in it. And I, since I started using it, I'm, I've seen a lot fewer problems, and uh, uh, I just think it's an outstanding product to use in the, well, in the vegetable garden or the flower bed, either one. Well, that's what I was going to add. Yeah, the raised, my raised beds are struggling a little bit, so then some yeah. of that might work out. Okay. That's going to be, if you're seeing any discoloring or any lack of just good green growth, it's not a fertilizer. You do need to use a nitrogen source, like your chicken manure, along with it, but azomite is a great micronutrient supplement uh, that I know of. No side effects, nothing negative about azomite at all. Okay. I'll give it a shot. Let Appreciate me know how your, your crop goes. Well, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Thank you, Bob. Uh -huh. You're welcome. 
All right, let's get the last break of the hour out of the way. Get to talk to you about Phanix and so many things to tell you about Phanix. They do have their fall tomatoes, fall peppers in, and it's time to get those in the ground. They've gotten so many things in recently. Got a big new shipment of hibiscus, both the uh, the perennial and the annual tropical hibiscus. Got new shipments of shrubs and trees. They undoubtedly have the widest selection of figs you're going to find anywhere in the area. Plenty of crepe myrtles. This just goes on and on. When your nursery covers 10 acres, you have room for a lot of different things. And, of course, uh, Frantix has branched out now. They're now carrying the Traeger pellet grills and all the supplies. And that wonderful lithium-ion battery-powered outdoor equipment uh, by Ego. You just need to check that out. It is so quiet and so powerful. I thought I never thought I would be using battery-powered equipment. But I have to tell you, once I learned how well they work, it's been well, it's been several years since I started any of my gas engines when it comes to that kind of equipment. Go check out Fanix. They're open seven days a week to serve you over on Home Green Road, right where they've been for about 85 years now. If you've got questions, give them a call, 648-1303. That's 210 area code. Always check their website, too, Fanic, F-A-N-I-C-K, FanicNursery.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Judy and Omar and Alan. And uh, let me do one thing real quickly here, and that is check the time. And looks like we have, uh, yeah, we've got plenty of time to take at least one call before news, and that would be Judy. Good morning, Judy. Hi, Bob. Listen, I planted pumpkin seeds July 4th. Uh They're coming along great, but I'm having trouble with leaf miners. Don't worry about it. There's not oh. a lot. There's not a lot to do about it. They're just making their little white road map in the in the leaves, and you would have to use some sort of toxic systemic chemical to have any of hope of killing them. And they're not doing enough damage to really warrant that. If you wanted to, and you just said I I don't like having them around, you could take a little very small, like a little surgeon's curette or something like that. And kind of go out to the end of you know their latest little highway and just trim out a little probably eighth inch portion of the leaf, but I, I don't think it's worth the um, the problem. Normally, and you know I hate to say with Texas weather anything's normal, but most of the time there is a little wasp that actually gets them under control. I was over at one of the Disney facilities in Florida visiting with their director of horticulture one time and got to see some video they have of uh, this little tiny wasp walking around on the surface of the leaf, determining where the leaf miner was, and then sticking its rear end, called its ovipositor, down through the top of the leaf into the leaf miner, depositing the wasp little egg in there, which then parasitizes the leaf miner, killing the leaf miner, and winds up making a new wasp. And most years, we seem to have plenty of those little wasps around because leaf miners aren't that much of an issue. This year, I'm seeing more leaf miners than I've seen in the last 10 years, and I don't know whether it's from the cold two years ago or from the heat this summer. Something has apparently suppressed the population of that little wasp that normally controls them. But they're unsightly, but they are basically harmless to your plant, so stop worrying about it. 
Okay, I've ne- I don't have them anywhere else in my yard, uh, and it really surprised me. So I thought, oh no, and I don't like the looks of the leaves. <laughs> so <laughs> well, focus, focus on the pumpkins you're going to get. Help. Yeah, if uh, if you have tomatoes, if you have peppers, chances are you're going to have some of them show up there. But uh, of all the problems you could have out there related to insects, uh, this would be this would be the one I'd I'd like to have if I had to have one because it's virtually harmless to the plants. It's just uh, they just won't unattractive. Uh, slowly kill all the leaves. No, not at all. You can have plenty of new leaves coming out. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. Two one zero five nine nine fifty five fifty five. All right, back to gardening on this nice Sunday morning out there. Jenny, I'm sorry I had to cut you off, but uh, when that second hand hits a certain spot, <laughs> it, it automatically goes to news. So I'm, I'm glad okay. you stayed. What else can I do? What, what else can well, I discuss just one, with you? I just had one more question about the pumpkin. I wondered if um, I should or could cut off the worst leaves of the leaf, you know, minor damage. Well, every bit, every bit of green tissue that you have contains chlorophyll, which is the a way that energy gets absorbed from the sun. The only way on Earth that that happens, well, I guess solar panels maybe, but in nature, every bit of green tissue you have is collecting sunlight. So if you've got an abundance of beautiful leaves, yeah, go ahead and cut off a few of the ugly ones. But you're you're just you're taking a little bit of the energy away from the plant if. Uh, you know, for every one that you cut off. So I wouldn't be too severe in, in cutting it off. You know, it's kind of like kind of like the squash uh, squash bugs. They lay their eggs on the back of the leaf. I go through and with a thumbnail, I just take out that little cluster of eggs and dispose of it. Uh, and it, But I, I don't ever take out the whole leaf when I've just got a problem on one area. So if you can be creative and just trim out a portion of the leaves that has the leaf miner damage, uh, that would be preferable to removing the whole leaf. But I'm not looking at your leaves. It may be the leaves so badly damaged, you just whack the whole thing off without causing any, really any change in your pumpkin plant. Okay, got it. Thank and you so much. You, you, ha, have you grown pumpkins before? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, just be aware that they are like squashing cucumbers. And the first several flowers that open for you are going to be male flowers, which can't produce a pumpkin any more than a man can have a baby. So uh, don't be at all frustrated when the flowers are open and yet you get no pumpkin. If you look right down at the base of the flower, uh, on some of the flowers you will start seeing what looks like a little tiny miniature pumpkin, half three quarters of an inch in diameter. Those are the female flowers. And so long as they get adequate pollination, that's where your pumpkins are going to develop. But don't be surprised if you start seeing flowers sometime in advance of seeing your first pumpkin because those are just male flowers, and that's just the way nature planned it. Oh, well, I'm glad you told me that. No, you know, uh, I heard a lady on your show wanting to know where to get seeds, and you talked about Dave's seeds for jack-o'-lantern pumpkins, Uh and I decided she wanted to do it for her grandson, and I decided Uh I wanted to do that too. So that's Very good. what started me. Well, and David's right here in our area. He has the biggest selection of seed that I know of, and much of it's heirloom seed. So 
I'm glad you got in touch with a good company. I'm glad your pumpkins are growing well. But he, he didn't send you any leaf miners. Those flew in on their own. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Bob. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, uh, Omar is up next. Good morning, Omar. Morning, Bob. How are you doing? Off to a good start. It's going to be a nice day out there. And uh, uh, tomorrow is going to be the 1st of August, and we're one day closer to cool fall weather. So that's what I'm focusing on in the heat today. But <laughs> you better enjoy the days. You know, it's just every day's a, a good day. Some are just better than others. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, I I had some notes on asparagus, and I can't find them. And uh, I was just wondering if you could tell me what uh, what's the when do people, what time of year are planting asparagus? Well, you plant asparagus when you can find it. Uh, asparagus is usually planted bare root, and it's pretty inexpensive. And the time that you're most likely to find it is going to be from oh, probably December twenty, December 20th to February 1st. That's the time that most of the asparagus is going to show up on the market. So, uh, I mean, what what happens occasionally, uh, the past few years, there's been so much demand for asparagus that, you know, I think every nursery is sold out of it. But uh, years past, when there wasn't as much demand, nurserymen would take anything they had left over when 1st of March rolled around and then pot it up in containers and then sell it during the summer. And there's nothing at all wrong with planting it then, but you're going to pay about four times as much for it because you're buying the pot and the soil and the time it took to grow it. Mm -hmm. So it's most widely available very early in the year, and that's the time most people are going to be planting it. And it's a total waste of time to plant two asparagus plants. You're not going to get enough asparagus to have more than just a, you know, a nibble every couple of days. So I would consider, especially if you have a family, I'm look, going to be looking at a minimum of a dozen or two plants. Uh, so the price of the individual plant <laughs> tends to become a little bit more critical when you're buying that many of them. Uh, mm -hmm. You're probably going to, you're only going to pay, oh, at most, uh, probably $2 a plant, more likely a dollar a plant when you're buying a bare root like that. So uh, get your soil ready, have it all ready to go, and uh, start checking in with your favorite nursery uh, right around the first of the year. And uh, I know, gosh, I know most of the better nurserymen in San Antonio and uh, uh, our suppliers, most, most of us are going to get at least a once-a-week shipment for the next six to eight to ten weeks once it becomes available. So get uh, uh, Get your soil ready and and plant as uh, you know as soon as the time's right. And, and full sun for for this. Absolutely, for, absolutely full okay. sun. Yeah, and and plan on watering frequently and feeding frequently. Uh, asparagus, it, you know, it makes a a big plant. And people that are planting asparagus for the first time, and I think you've probably grown it before. But you have to realize that the part you eat is exactly the same thing that makes that kind of ferny, feathery growth if you don't harvest it. And keep in mind, these plants are going to be four or five feet tall and several feet across. So they need, they need lots of nutrients. They need plenty of water. And wow. I plant mine about 18 inches on center because it, I'd, I'd like just having a forest of it. I don't, I don't want to see individual plants because those tops can get broken, can get blown around in the wind. I'd rather have kind of a forest of asparagus growing up in the summer months. And in the spring when you're harvesting, you know, you're going to see the individual crowns. You're going to be picking spears off of individual plants. But in the summer months, I want just a forest of uh, growth out there. 
I usually, most of my asparagus is grown along a, uh, a net fence, and I'll just take a rope and go down to one end of that row, uh, tie onto the fence, and then come all the way around about three feet off the ground just to hold those fronds up so they're out of the way and so they don't get beaten up too badly by the weather. But uh, just plan, if you, if you like asparagus, plan on planting plenty of plants. And it'll it'll do produce okay in a molasses stuff because we I live we live on a rock hill. Sure, yeah. Uh, I would put uh, let's see molasses tub. I'm probably going to put about six plants in a molasses tub, but I'm going to have gotcha. about four or five molasses tubs. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, and if and, uh, that lady is still listening about the water testing, you know we've had we we had to go through that as well, but. Uh, any, anybody else in San Antonio, we use San Antonio uh, testing lab. They have a, like most labs, they have a drinking water test slate that, uh, that's good. tailored tailored for that. Very good. But, well, I appreciate right. you sharing that. One, one more thing I will tell you, mm-hmm. not so much for your benefit, Omar, but for everybody else listening, that when it comes to harvesting asparagus, first year you're probably not going to harvest. You're just going to let the plants grow. The next year you're going to start harvesting, and when you are harvesting, you pick every single shoot that comes up. You don't say, I'm going to let some grow and I'm going to pick some. No, when you start picking, you, you pick off every shoot that comes up or else the plants will stop producing more. The first year that you're harvesting, you can pick everything that comes up for probably three or four weeks. The next year, you can probably pick everything that comes up for six weeks. Uh, eventually, you get to the point that you can pick uh, everything that comes up for 10 or 12 weeks. But with asparagus, it's it's just while it's producing those new shoots, you're going to harvest everything you see. And then when it's time to start harvesting, you totally stop harvesting and just let it grow up and make its feathery growth. Gotcha, gotcha. It's just kind of a unique plant, but we say that about so many different things. So I appreciate the call, (laughs) and uh, you call me if you think of anything else. Yes, sir. Thank you. My pleasure always. Thank you, Omar. All right. Let's take a quick break here, and uh, Alan will be up next. Uh, Looks like I get to talk to you about Medina agriculture, and I guess that's one other thing I should have said. When I plant asparagus and getting that soil ready, I work plenty of Medina's Growing Green in. That's one of my favorite uh, dry, granular, organic fertilizers, and Growing Green is certified organic, and it's great in the vegetable garden, great for blackberries, great for asparagus. of it's just a, a good quality product, like everything that comes from Medina. Medina also makes great liquid fertilizers. I will usually follow up during the growing season with more. In fact, I've gotten to where I, lo- I rotate the liquid has to grow plant and their new fish blend, liquid fish blend. And let me tell you, the results are just absolutely outstanding. Medina also makes products like their uh, soil activator. Also, the improved form of that they call Medina Plus. And all these products can be used right here in the hottest part of the summer. Heat doesn't affect them, and you're not going to have any burning. Uh, You don't even have to follow up with watering. They don't really go to work until they get watered, but uh, it's it's not like the synthetic products where somebody better be following you with a hose or you're going to do more damage than good. Medina products can be used 365 days a year. And they have a lot of different quality products. Check their website, medinaag.com, if you want to get even more information. That's Medina Agriculture. All right. Thank you, George. Got Tom for the good, beautiful guitar music in the background there. Looks like it's to be Alan and Gordon and Terry. Alan is up first. Good morning, Alan. Good, good morning. I just uh, wasted uh, 20 minutes of my time and $40 on an olive oil, bottle of oil, olive oil. My question <laughs> is, can you uh, 
have an olive tree in San Antonio? Absolutely. Absolutely. Really? Yeah, and you can make your own olive oil. It's only going to cost you about, I don't know, $1,000 a quart or something like that. But uh, uh, you, you know, there are, golly, the stories behind olive oil. Olives grow really pretty well here. At least some varieties do. The fastest growing, soonest to produce is one called Arbicania. But there's Mission. There, there are several different olives. But um, the it's not just a simple matter of you know growing an olive and squeezing the oil out of it. It's a little more complex than that. And uh, you certainly don't eat a raw olive. It will empty your tummy. As I understand, our our troops in Italy in World War II, that was what they did to people in the company they didn't like, is talk them into, hey, look at these beautiful olives, Uh, have some to eat. And uh, the results were kind of a great deal of gastric distress. So uh, it is possible, but um, the art of making olive oil is something that probably took a thousand years to really perfect. I wish Sandy Winokur was still alive. That lady was just amazing. She's the lady that started and owned uh, Sandy Oaks Olive Orchard just south of San Antonio. Unfortunately, cancer claimed her a couple of years ago. But Sandy actually made and pressed her own olive oil. I remember that now. Yeah. 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 She wow. and, and Bruce Bruce Dooley helped her out with it a good deal. You can still probably get hold of Bruce. I hear from him every now and then. I'm not real sure exactly where he's living, but uh, his uh, uh, email is uh, natureapproved at yahoo.com unless he's changed it. And you might drop Bruce, a, you know, shoot him an email and say, what can you tell me about actually making olive oil? You'll probably get more information than you ever wanted to know. I can sure tell you how to grow them. And that is basically uh, uh, San Antonio is about the northern limit of where they're going to consistently survive the winters. You're not going to see them, you know, grown in the Dallas area or anywhere further north. But uh, in San Antonio proper, you can certainly grow them. And like I say, Arbicania is probably the variety you really want to start with. But Bruce would be the guy that might be able to tell you a little bit about actually pressing and getting the oil. Uh, commercially, you know, there's extra virgin. There's uh, virgin olive oil, it just depends. They they get a certain level of oil the first time the olives are pressed. Then they go back and repress them and get more olive oil. And uh, there's just there's a great deal of difference in the quality of the oil, depending exactly how it's expressed from the olives. So uh, I, I'm first to admit things that I don't know anything about, and I don't know anything about pressing olive oil, but I can sure help you grow some. Wow. Do you all have one of those trees that you're... Uh store we we keep them pretty often they're grown largely as ornamental trees too and uh i'd have to walk out and look and see i can see at least a couple of them looking out the back door some of them we have as bushes and that's what's always going to give you the most production but if you're limited on space you can also grow them as a topiary grow them actually in tree form and um uh yeah absolutely they're they're good plants they certainly they grow well here but uh, if I were, I wouldn't even try them in Fredericksburg. You just get much north of San Antonio, you're going to have damage. We had damage uh, two winters ago with that severe, severe cold. Most of the plants froze down but came back out. Most years they don't even freeze like full sun, out. I guess. Oh, yeah. More sun, the better. Yeah. Hey, on that uh, man that was asking about the asparagus, I've got some yeah. plants growing. Uh, they're not doing real well, but, you know, they they 
like uh, like lots of water seems like. Oh, it's just going to uh, say they're not doing well. You're probably not watering enough. It's it's yeah, uh, yeah yeah. It's it's like every second, every third day, even on established plants, newly planted plants. You're probably going to be watering every day when it's 104 degrees out there. If your soil drains yeah. well at all, it would be hard uh, to give them too much water. Yeah, I got one in a pot doing better in a greenhouse than than the ones outside. So I don't know. <laughs> It's, what was uh, that uh, email of uh, Bruce Dooley? Nature approved at yahoo.com, I believe. He's an interesting guy, wasn't he? He is an interesting guy. He's he's lost some of his vision, I understand, but I mean, the man's ever been from everything from a turtle researcher in the Galapagos Islands to a real specialty, the number two man on the microscope. Uh, with uh, laser vision correction, to he was a Canon camera representative at one point. I uh, I used to kid him about not being able to hold the job, but he just is interested in so many things, and he's done a, a lot of different things in his life. And just just an interesting guy to know, and uh, I'm sure it'd help any any way he could. Didn't he take over for you a few times when you were on vacation or something? Yeah, yeah, right. it. Uh, yeah, it, it and and I always enjoyed that. The problem was when somebody had, and that's up until he had his own show. It would require the station usually to have uh, a second person sit in with them to do the technical part of it, and so that's when they sort of switched over on all their talk shows to doing best of shows and instead of having yeah. guest hosts that much. But yeah, Bruce has actually got his own radio show now on one of the uh, internet. Uh, uh, stations out there and from what i understand it's very popular and uh got a lot of podcasts out there so get in touch with him and see how he can help you okay appreciate the time thank you always a pleasure alan thank you sir uh let's see let's go ahead and talk to gordon good morning gordon good morning how are you off to a good start every day is a good day great great i want to talk about my yard and uh specifically that i want to have it in bermuda grass which uh-huh. a few years ago i really did and it was strong and it was great and uh, but it just seemed like the grass started to kind of wane and a lot of other grasses started to creep in and a lot of weeds to creep in and i decided i really want to turn this thing around so okay. recently fertilized i started watering a good bit and uh it just seemed like everything that i don't want is what's coming back and it looks like the Bermuda is starting to grow, but I've got to try and find a way to turn this trend around and give the Bermuda the edge and, and do away with some of the things that are coming back. And specifically okay. what I'm having a lot of trouble with is crabgrass. Sure, sure. Um, is, has your yard gotten shadier over the years? Do you have trees that are growing and getting thicker? No, not an issue. Got a lot of sun where I'm trying to do this. Okay, because full, hot, hot, hot sun. Bermuda grass is the second strongest grass out there. Uh, St. Augustine mm-hmm. will choke Bermuda out, but with mm-hmm. uh, giving it the things it needs, Bermuda is going to choke out just about everything else. The the two things, three things that it needs, uh, very regular mowing, and uh, you can mow it. I wouldn't mow it real, real, real low, but I'd, I'd be cutting it down maybe an inch and a half high, and it's probably mm-hmm. going to mean, even in a hot summer, it's probably going to mean watering it at least once a week. If you're really fighting a lot of weeds, you may wind up watering it or, or mowing it twice a week. Uh, mm-hmm. Weekly watering is adequate, but you need to probably put down two inches of water every time you water it. And I'd be feeding it every probably eight weeks. 
Uh, but you give the Bermuda grass regular mowing, plenty of sunlight, plenty of water, plenty of fertilizer. It's going to choke out crabgrass. It's going to choke out clover. It's going to chuck out just about everything else that comes out. Now, if it comes to replacing any areas, you might want to look at uh, one of the varieties uh, of what they call TIFF, T-I-F-F, TIFF Bermuda is a lower growing Bermuda that is so dense it's going to choke things out even faster than your regular common Bermuda is going to do so that's that's what they use on golf greens uh, but it, it can't be planted from seed there's some good varieties of uh, regular Bermuda that can be planted from seed but TIFF Bermuda has to be planted from pieces of existing sod but it is the densest most the, the form of Bermuda that's going to choke out weeds faster than anything else now Starting it from seed is tough because you've got to keep that seed moist. If you were to put out Bermuda seed, and you can do it today, but for the first two or three or four weeks until it really sprouts and gets started, you're probably going to be watering it four times a day to keep that seed moist enough to germinate and, and get started in this kind of heat. And uh, most of us don't really have the time to be doing that. It's just it's a lot of work when it's really hot and really dry just to get the seed to germinate and start growing. But once it's up and growing, or if you have any significant amount of Bermuda left there, like I say, low mowing, regular fertilizing and watering, uh, by the fall you should have significantly fewer weeds. The problem, other problem with Bermuda is it's always going to brown out in the winter. It's first grass to turn brown, the last grass to turn green in the spring. And spring is when you get most of your weeds started before the Bermuda has even even begun to grow. So you're going to have to keep this mowing up through the early spring. And then once the heat hits, your Bermuda just explodes into growth. I swear it, can, it looks like it grows 6 to 12 inches a day. But uh, just keep those uh, four things in mind. Plenty of sun, plenty of mowing, plenty of water, plenty of fertilizer. And you can have a gorgeous Bermuda yard. Can you give me a recommendation on fertilizer? I like, there, there are three good organic products out there. Well, there's actually a fourth. But the three most reasonably priced ones are Medina makes a product which is called Growing Green. Uh, Texas Tea is a product by a company called Maestro Grow. And Nature's Creation makes a product they call Premium Lawn Food. Uh, the Nature's Creation product is uh, based on alfalfa and some other things, and it has less odor. The uh, Maestro Grow is a whole combination of different things go into it. Medina uses basically a poultry litter base. Um, they're probably going to have a new one come out in the next few months uh, that's going to be a little bit lower odor. But uh, the Growing Green is probably going to be the easiest one for you to find. But all three of those are excellent. Uh, Espoma is a company that also makes a great general fertilizer, but seeing as how it's shipped from the East Coast, it's a little bit pricier when it comes to uh, cost. But uh, my my three that I would look closely at are Medina, Maestro Grow, and Nature's Creation. Okay. You know, some areas are so bad I've thought about just tilling it up and trying to start over, but I hear what you said about trying to start from seed. But uh-huh. In any case, I mean, if I were to want to till an area up and try and get it going in Bermuda, what do I do about all the weeds that are there already? Are they just going to come sprouting right back? Or Oh, they're, they're going to come sprouting is- back. Yeah, they're going to come sprouting back even worse because when you till the soil, you bring up weed seeds that have been buried, seeds that required, germa- that required light to germinate and grow. And so when you start tilling the soil, uh, you start bringing up all of those seeds and uh 
Uh, you could actually, you know, if you had a decent Bermuda yard, when you till it, you're going to break it up and you're just going to get more and more and more Bermuda because every one of those little pieces of rhizome that you chop up uh, is is going to, you know, start growing. But I really don't recommend tilling. It's hard on sprinkler systems. It's pretty tough on you and the soil is so dry and hard right now, it would be a difficult job to do. Uh, the other thing that I will tell you to do, though, is when it cools off in the fall, it's too hot to do it now, but when it cools off yes. in the fall, get a good load of compost. Spread it maybe half an inch deep, quarter, half inch deep over the area, and that's going to just create almost miracles in the way it grows. But you can't do it in the hot, hot part of the summer with bulk compost because it's not fully broken down. Now, if you wanted to, if you wanted to start with a small area, uh, go to a good nursery, get a good bagged compost. Uh, Nature's Creation is the one that uh, I recommend most highly. Uh, the bagged compost products are much further decomposed, and they are safe to use in the heat, but they're going to be much more expensive due to the cost of bagging. Uh, you know, And mm -hmm. if you have a significant area to do, then it's going to be a lot cheaper for you to get a good compost, uh, you know, literally in a dump truck and spread it yourself. Now, if you only had 200 square feet to do, I'd tell you go out and buy the compost today in a bag because, uh, uh, you know, diesel prices, uh, labor costs, you're going to pay a substantial delivery fee and you've got to be in need of five or six or more yards of compost uh, to justify the cost of having it delivered to you. Less than that, yeah, I'll go to a good nursery and, and buy it by the bag because it's fully finished and you can use that stuff 365 days a year. But uh, it sounds to me like you've probably got a, a pretty good area you need to cover. So uh, I'd, I'd hold off till the weather cools off and then uh, then just get a good load of compost. And one last thing to ask you, please. I mean, one thing, I got a soil analysis some years ago. One of the glaring deficiencies that I had was iron. What is your one and two recommendations for that problem? Um, the, the, the cheaper solution, if iron is your only issue, is uh, green sand. Uh, it is yeah. a, uh, it's a natural source. But I tell you, I have almost totally switched over to something called azomite, A-Z-O-M-I-T-E. Uh, it has lots of iron in it, but it has far more other uh, micronutrients and compounds in it than green sand does. It's substantially more expensive than green sand, but you're getting about 10 times as many different things in the product, and it's very long-lasting. It's a great source of iron, but uh, if you're going to do any more soil testing, it's very important uh, as to who te does your soil test for you. Mm -hmm. the only, only company I recommend is down in the Rio Grande Valley. It's called Texas Plant and Soils Labs. And uh, briefly, to tell you why that is, most of the people that do soil tests, A&M and most of the others, they basically take your soil, uh, treat it with a strong acid, and treat it with a strong base, and see what comes out, and they can tell you what's in the soil, and they can tell you very accurately what is in the soil. The problem is they're not telling you what's available to your plants. Uh, it's like calcium. It's like some other things. There may be a lot of it in your soil, and your plants may be deficient because they can't get to that nutrient because it's tied up in an insoluble form. The way the plants do it is they release carbon dioxide through the roots. That forms a mild carbonic acid solution in the soil, which is what frees up the nutrients that are there. The people down at Texas Plant Soils Labs in Edinburgh, they actually use a carbonic acid extraction method 
And so what their soil test is going to tell you is not just what's in the soil, but what is available to your plants. And uh, their soil tests are no more expensive than the others, but um, they give you, in my opinion, you know, a lot more useful analysis of your soil. For the folks in agriculture, they go one step further. They will actually take whatever crop they're growing. They take a sample of the leaf petiole, the stem on the leaf, and they test the petiole. It's called the petiole test. And they tell you what is not only is what is available in the soil, but what the plants are actively taking up. And they can tell that cotton farmer or that corn farmer, hey, if you want to maximize your crop, put this on it and do it at this schedule. So I'm a big fan of Texas Plant and Soils Labs. They do a good job. And uh, if I were going to get a soil test, uh, that's where I'd send it. And they're, they're no more expensive than the other guys. They just, I think, give you a more useful result. I understand. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. I appreciate the call this morning. You have a great weekend. All right. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Ah, I guess it's going to break out of the way here. Don, I don't have a live at this spot, so we'll run those recordings and we'll get back to phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Terry and Mike and Cheryl. Terry is up first. Good morning, Terry. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I've got a follow-up question to a tree watering answer you gave a lady yesterday. All right, and, sir. Uh, and I've got a bunch of, uh, i got about 25 trees. I started 10 years ago replacing trees that were passing away here at the place. And yep. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still watering trees that I planted 10 years ago that are Mexican sycamores, and they're probably 40 foot tall or more. Right, and right. Three of there's three or four that I started uh, with about ten years ago. I'm still watering them about once once a month or so, as, as well as over the years. I've got them ranging from one year old to five to six to ten year old, and sure. I, and I usually pick a day out and I'll run the hoses out there and I'll flood, I got about three foot diameter uh, let's say reservoir around them. I keep grass away from it and I can flood. I'll flood that for about four or six hours, but it sounded like at a certain age or years in the in the ground, I need to stop doing that. Is am I doing something wrong? <laughs> no, sir. You're doing it all right. And uh, what I was, you know, and what we were discussing is that the fact that the tree really only grows as many roots as it needs to support itself. And sycamores are sort of an exception. And I, gosh, just didn't have time to go into everything, but. Many trees like oaks and pecans and elms and escarpment cherries, those are trees that will become established to the point that you can almost forget about watering them. I've got healthy pecan trees on my ranch that have probably been there for two or three hundred years, oak trees that have been there for that long or longer, and I've never added a drop of water to them because, uh, well, it would just be physically impossible to do it. But there are other trees that we plant for reasons of fast growth or you know, just wanting instant shade, or some people just like, in the case of Mexican sycamores, uh, the beautiful white bark that they have as they exfoliate and, you know, peel off the previous year's growth. And I always tell people, Mexican sycamore or any other sycamore is a plant that is thirsty, and it will never totally wean itself off of needing some water. That's why, if you look at where they grow in nature, they grow, you know, along creek beds, along river beds, things like that, because they they can't get along without some supplemental watering 
in a really dry year. Now, a typical Texas weather, probably two years out of three, maybe three years out of four, they'll do fine without any water, any supplemental water from you. But in a summer like this, if you don't water them, they're going to really suffer because Mother Nature just has not been too kind to us. So it, uh, uh, Mexican sycamore rewards you with fast growth, with having very few problems, uh, with you know making a beautiful tree and uh, lots of dense shade. But the price of that is, is you can never stop giving it a little bit of help. But over time, you can really really reduce you know how often you have to water it if i had a mexican sycamore that i planted a year ago i'd be watering that thing once a week if i had established mexican sycamore i'd probably be watering it every six to eight weeks does that make sense yes sir it does it it does and i hope it's i hope it's a long time before we see another summer as dry as this one oh yes uh, our, our our driest one year period since they started keeping weather records was 2011 and we've had less rain in most areas than we had in 2011. Our, our first multi-year drought was back in the 50s, 56 to 60. But uh, with my water district work, we keep up with these things on a regular basis. But we are, we are into the driest year that we've had since they started keeping weather records. So kind of all bets are off. There's no such thing as normal. Uh, some of these trees, and really any newly planted tree, is going to have to have supplemental water. But a handful of trees, such as Mexican sycamore, such as cottonwood, um, such as a few others, uh, this kind of weather, we're going to have to be supplementing that water pretty much uh, uh, from now on. But hopefully we're not going to have many years like this. Okay. Uh, uh, my pride of Barbados are exploding and throwing <laughs> seeds 15, 18 foot away from where the plant oh, yeah. is on the patio. Yeah. I, I've gathered, I gathered up a bunch of the seeds, and I'm thinking about trying to uh, plant them to see could, could, if you don't. Well, they come out pretty. They're out in the yard, wild, and I oh, think right. a little yep. bit. And I'll, I'll, I'll put them in a pot and keep them going. But anyway, I got these seeds. What What would I do to... Uh, maybe put these seeds, you know, actually put them in the place where I want them to grow. Well, I I would recommend that you start them in a small pot and then put them out. If you if you plant them directly in the ground, they're going to sprout and grow, but they're probably not really going to have time to harden off. And if we get a cold winter, a lot of them died. Okay. So I think yeah. you would be better at start as start as many seeds as you like, but just have them so that the five or six really cold nights we typically get every year that you can drag them inside. Not going to have to do it very often. But uh, the uh, Pride of Barbados, Cecilopinia, makes a really hard seed. And to get it to germinate well, if you can scratch it lightly, you're not trying to saw a hole in the seed. But a lot of people will take them and, uh, you know, put several seeds between two sheets of sandpaper and just rough them up a little bit. Uh, the professional guys, they'll take the, an old uh, rock tumbler or old gym tumbler. They'll dump the seed in there and throw a little bit of powdered carborundum or something with it. But you're just trying to abrade that waxy surface on the seed. Then give them probably an overnight soak in uh, water, especially if you add a little bit of garret juice, a little bit of liquid seaweed to it. Then plant it, and you'll get a lot more seeds germinating a lot faster. And just... Uh, Keep them where you can protect them through the first winter. After that, next spring, you can plant them out anywhere you like. They're one of the most beautiful and colorful plants you'll have in South Texas in the summer months. 
you know, the low maintenance also. You don't have to yes, mess sir. with them too much. Hey, sir. But I, I laugh because I remember I was collecting seed for one of the growers. We don't have time to do that, but I do collect seed. We do take cuttings from different things and share with the different growers, and we want them to grow and, you know, make them more widely available. And I'm sitting on the porch, and my nearest pride of Barbados is probably 25 feet away, and I am hearing those seeds. I mean, it almost sounds like a twenty-two <laughs> shot when that thing explodes, and then you just hear the, the seeds just come raining down around you. And uh, I, I'm continuously fascinated by how well Mother Nature has equipped plants to survive. In some cases, that's good, and some of the plants I don't like, it's not so good. But uh, I don't see how anybody can ever get bored studying nature. They just were always seeing something new and different, and Sometimes it's humorous, and sometimes it will cause you to utter things that I can't say on the air because, uh, you know, it's going to be a problem. <laughs> Sticker burrs among them. Yes. Uh, just one more quick one. I got some banana trees, about a cluster of about 10 small ones that I, I was able to get through the blizzard last year. Yeah. And uh, when we do our redo our flower beds, move some things around, When I, if I want to move some of those, well, I, I want to move some of those, uh, when would be a good time? You said, I think at one time you told someone you pull them up one at a time and put them where you want them. And and pretty much so. Them. Yeah, it's the, the best time to do it is in early spring when they just first start growing because they're kind of like true palms that when you cut those roots, they're pretty going to much cut, die back all the way to that big kind of club foot that a banana tree has. Uh-huh. So. And and yet they have so many leaves, it's hard to transplant them in the middle of the summer because they simply transpire so much moisture. They don't they go through a lot of shock. So very best time if you want the optimum results, uh, do it in probably late February when they're first just starting to put on their spring growth. Second best time would be after it cools off in the fall. But um, if you can put it off till about end of February, first of March, that's going to be the time when you're going to have pretty much a hundred percent success. Yeah, that won't be a problem. Uh, that'll work out good. Okay. All right, then. Well, that gives me a little bit to, to work on then. Well, and if you want to do any of it now, you can dig them up, put them in nursery cans where you can drag them over into the shade and really baby them along. If there's somewhere that you just said, well, I'm going to put a swimming pool there and I've got to do something, then I'd tell you to dig them, separate them, put them in pots and, and drag them into a shadier area. But uh, if if life lets you put that off until... Uh, late winter, early spring, that's going to be the very best time for you to go after it, Terry. Okay, that sounds good. Well, thank I you, think. Bob. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. And, Don, let's get that last break done. We'll come back and talk to Mike and Cheryl. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Mike and Cheryl and Don. Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, uh, I was just sitting around here, and I said, let me test uh, Bob's uh, memory and his knowledge. All right, sir. Um, I was on Facebook the other day, and I spotted this uh, ground cover. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not a, it's not ivy, so that's why. Uh, uh, and perish forbid, I should have written down the name of the product, right, the, the, the ground cover. <laughs> sure. But it, but it had pinkish flowers and that you can walk on it and everything it doesn't grow very tall do you have any idea what that might be um well keep in mind that that ivy is merely a vining plant it there there are lots of different things um 
And this is something that you saw online? It was on Facebook, yeah. Oh, okay. It's probably not something that's going to grow real well here if it has pink flowers. Um, there uh-huh. is there is a uh, low-growing plant called Skullcap, S-K-U-L-L-C-A-P. Excellent, okay. excellent plant, but it's, it's not, and it, it could be a ground cover, but it's going to grow about five, six inches tall. Now, that's one that I would say, you know, would do very well. If you're looking for something that is flatter to the ground, it could be some form of thyme, the herb thyme. Some of the thymes have pink blooms, some of them have white blooms, and some uh-huh. of them do well here, some of them don't. They um, they don't stand up to foot traffic very well, but uh, there's one company that sells them, among other plants, they call Steppables, because you could walk on them if it's not too often. And I've seen time use as beautiful ground cover, but I'd suggest if you were going to do that, that you put some stepping stones down so that you're not walking directly on it. Now, those are very, very small pink flowers. Uh, the uh-huh. skullcap is is a little taller growing and just produces a myriad of flowers. I have a bed uh, going up my driveway where I have uh, the pink salvia gradii, which grows about 18 inches tall, and then at the edge of this bed, where it can grow and kind of cascade over the sides, I have the uh, the pink skull cap, and it's great. Uh, there is also a form of oxalis. It is uh, called oxalis crassipes, and uh, it is it's going to go away at certain times of the year. It grows from little tiny bulbs, and beautiful when it's in bloom in late spring and summer months. But it's going to completely disappear in the fall and winter months. But uh, um, pink oxalis, or like say botanical name oxalis, C-R-A-S-S-I-P-E-S, I think is how it's spelled, crassipes, and that could certainly be it. And uh, I have to say that's uh, that's a good one too. But I do not know of an evergreen, low-growing plant that is vine-like that uh, that would do well in this area. Is skullcap walkable? Um, it won't stand heavy foot traffic, but if you had to walk through the bed now yeah. and then, I don't think that would be yeah. a problem. There's a somewhat similar and plant with the blue flower. Let me get uh, Don to put you on hold. Let's talk a little bit more about this after the news, if you don't mind. We'll be right back here on KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right. Boy, it's hard to believe the two hours of the show have already gone by. Great questions today. Of course, there are great questions all the time. And uh, just really appreciate you guys a great deal. Go back and visit a little bit more with Mike. And then it'll be Cheryl and John and Don. And uh, good morning once again, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Yes, sir. All right. So uh, go ahead. I was going to ask you also, uh, does the skull cap uh, require a lot of water? Once it's established, uh, it requires very little water. I've watered mine Great. twice so far this summer. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. But let me tell you about another plant that you might be interested in if you're wanting something that's more of a durable ground cover. Take a look at yes. the plant that is called, they call it dwarf plumbago. It is not plumbago. It just, its proper name is Ceratostigma plumbagioides, which literally means looks like plumbago. And that's where it got the name. Spell, how do you spell wharf? Like a wharf on the dock of the bay? Uh, but no, dwarf, D-W-A-R-F, like like small. Oh, short. Yeah, short. And it uh, uh, it has a very dark blue flower, 
Uh, it is, uh, it's, you know, it, it's very much ground hugging. It's probably no more than three to four inches tall, and it, uh, it, it goes away totally in the winter months. It, the foliage turns beautiful crimson and, uh, you know, typical fall colors, and then it goes back down to the ground, but it comes back just strong, strong. It suffered no damage when I had five degrees two years ago. Um, I watered it for the first time this year about a week ago. It's in full bloom now. It's a beautiful cobalt blue, dark, dark blue flower. And uh, like I say, it's not going to be evergreen. It's going to go away. But golly, I planted it maybe eight or ten years ago. It spreads through little underground runners. It's uh, uh, it's in an area that I don't walk regularly, and the dogs don't run through it, so it's not going to stand up to heavy foot traffic. But uh, if you walk through it, you know, once or twice a week or something like that, you're not going to hurt it in the least. Beautiful flowers. I've never seen an insect on it. Um, if some of the, if I was talking to a lady, I would point out that I have seen a small snake in it a time or two, but at least it's uh, low enough that you will see those things rather than uh, be unpleasantly surprised by stepping on them. But uh, in your area, if I were just looking for a tough, tough, hardy, hardy plant, and you're going to want to water it with some regularity to get it established at least, and it'll bloom more if you, yeah. you know, water it every few weeks, but uh um, and it, it's beautiful. This is what happens to be growing on the ground at the base of the rock wall or the raised bed where I have the uh, the uh, pink skull cap and the salvia gregii. And the, the tall pink, the lower pink, and the dark blue down below that is quite an attractive combination. Does the um, skull cap uh, dry out or die off at winter? No. No. I okay. had minor damage at five degrees, but it came back strong. Yeah, we. I, I don't think it's ever gotten down to five degrees here. It's gotten down to fifteen, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think it's ever gotten down to five. <laughs> now, now there are several forms of skull cap out there, and they're all scutellarias. The pink, to me, is the most showy. There is also a white form that is upright like that. There is one that's sort of violet colored, but it is more of a succulent uh, growth habit, and it has to have the shade. But the pink form is and, very happy, very happy in the sun. And do you have those available? We normally do. You know, our inventory changes on a day-to-day basis, I'm happy to sure, say. Sure, sure. <laughs> Yesterday we had them. Uh, th- this morning, I don't know. If you were coming to town, call before you come by. I don't want you to make a special sure, trip. Sure, sure. But, uh, no, no, it, I'm going up to Austin, so I go right by yeah. your place uh, to get up there on, you know, the loop and... Uh, so uh, I'll catch you on the way going up, and if you don't have it, I'll catch you on the way coming back. Well, that will work, and take time to look at some of the new construction we've done over here uh, using some of that eco-vantage wood. I, I think you'll be very impressed with uh, with that wood. And uh, anyway, we did, we did some fun things that look absolutely beautiful, replacing a couple of older rough cedar structures that had just totally totally done their time and were rotting away, and yeah. uh, this stuff's probably sure. going to last for 50 years. So we'd love to have you come by and take a look. I would love to, Bob, and uh, chat. good chatting with you, too. Always a pleasure, Mike. You have a wonderful right. weekend, and uh, do a rain Thank dance. You. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Yes, yes. Certainly. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. All right, Cheryl's next in line. Good morning, Cheryl. Hello, Bob. Uh, I'm just still laughing about the pride of Barbados seeds. <laughs> the same <laughs> thing happened to me a couple of years ago. I had gathered up a bunch of them had them in a basket in the corner of the, <laughs> the TV yeah. room, 
And, yeah. you know, a month later or so, I heard this, like you say, it sounds like a twenty two going off. <laughs> and yeah, looked it's, over, it's, and they were just flying in the air. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, no. my I, I was thinking to myself it would be most appropriate if that Smith & Wesson commercial ran immediately yes, after I we had that. <laughs> that. But, uh, no, they are interesting. But that's that's the fun thing because I, I do talk to people who want to collect the seed, but those pods can, you know, be a little hard to open. <laughs> and I tell people, yes, you know, just put your seed in a bucket, but put a cover over the top of it and leave that's them sitting out idea. there for for a week or so, and when you come back, at least half of them will have popped open, and it'll save you that much more of the trouble. But always cover the bucket, or they will be everywhere around. Absolutely. <laughs> well, the reason I called uh, was uh, liquid seaweed. I uh, The print is so small that my 79-year-olds can't read <laughs> the instructions. So well, and what are, uh, what are you using it for? I'm using it on to as a foliar spray okay. for some yeah. of my plants. About two tablespoons per gallon. Two to a gallon. Okay. Yeah. If you were using it to soak cuttings in or using it as a seed soak, I would do it a little bit stronger than that. But as a foliar spray, uh, one tablespoon per gallon is good. Two tablespoons per gallon is even better. Beyond that point, you're not going to hurt anything, but I don't think... Uh, the law of diminishing returns sets in. I think at about two tablespoons per gallon, which is one ounce per gallon, that's the right. ideal dilution for a foliar spray. All right. That is great. And I want to give you an update on the daily spraying of my potted plants out on the patio. My philodendron, split-leaf philodendron, is getting a new leaf on it at least once a week. Good. And my corkscrew croton has new growth coming out at the base of the plant. My mandevilla is just blooming like crazy. It's just amazing how much that has helped <laughs> my plants look so much better in this heat. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's one of those things you kind of get back what you put into it. And whether it's the dead of winter and you're working in your greenhouse or whether it's the heat of summer and you're working early morning and late afternoon, uh, you That's can, me. yeah, my feeling is you should always have a, a flower you can pick and always have a vegetable you can eat every day of the year. And that's, that's one of the reasons it's so nice to live this far south. That is so true. Well, it's north for me. I grew up uh, 15 and a half miles from the river in Hidalgo <laughs> County. <laughs> yes, well, you, you've, you've moved away from some of the current problems, but you haven't moved far enough north to get into other ones. So you're just that where you're supposed to be. I believe it. Take you have care. a wonderful weekend, I Cheryl. I enjoy your show. Thank well, you. Well, I appreciate the call. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, uh, Don, let's get a first break of the hour done, and we'll be back and talk to Don. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Don and E.T. and Elizabeth. Don is up first. Good morning, Don. Morning, Bob. This is Don down in Divine. Yes, sir. Good morning. I have a real good question for you. Do they make a spray to spray to spray the tomatoes to get rid of the hornworms? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, it's called BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, and it's sometimes sold as BT worm killer. It's sold under a lot of different names. Uh, the one thing they don't tell you on the package is that it's even more effective if you'll add just a little bit of molasses to it. But, um, yeah, you can buy it in a little hand sprayer all ready to spray and go, or you can buy it as a concentrate. Because I typically spray my tomatoes periodically with uh, liquid seaweed and molasses during the growing season, usually if I treat one time with BT in the spring, it lasts all through the growing season. If you're not spraying with liquid seaweed, it's possible. You might have to repeat it once or twice, but uh, BT is, uh, in this form, is totally harmless to people and pets, but very, very effective at controlling the hornworms. Yeah, because this week, that's all I've been doing is is pulling off hornworms, and <laughs> I don't see the color green very well. Let's just put it that way. So yep. I have to stand there and stare at a tomato for about 20 minutes to find oh, a yeah. worm. Well, again, pick a pick a, a, a time of the day. I don't spray any liquid, you know, in the hot, hot sun because a little drop of water can act as a magnifying glass and burn the tissue underneath it. But morning or evening... Get out there and spray with your with your uh, uh, BT with just a little molasses in it, and it's the it, it's a stomach poison. The way it works, the hornworm takes a single bite out of a leaf with BT on it. It stops feeding immediately and dies within a few hours. So, uh, um, sad thing is, it turns into a fairly pretty moth. But pretty is as pretty does, and I don't want things eating on my tomatoes, and as soon as you get through eating your tomatoes, they'll move to your peppers and start eating on those. So a little bit of BT is uh, the answer to the hornworm issues. Yeah, because right now I'm about a month and a half behind everybody else in gardening because everything did not produce, and I was building a raised bed, and my okra finally got to the point where it's starting to make okra. Uh-huh. Well, you're not behind everybody, Don. You, your timing was pretty good. I, I know a lot of people that just, including me, that basically gave up on the spring tomatoes and uh, looking hopefully to have a good fall garden. So uh, I think your timing turned out to be pretty good after all. Yeah, because I've been I've been thinning out the okra because it's about two feet tall because I thin it out and I transplant it into another part of the bed where I'm getting 50% of my transplant at least. Yeah, and I foliage I foliage feed everything with the um, Medina fish. Mm -hmm. That the worms don't really like that either. I can tell you that they don't like the taste <laughs> of fish for some reason. Yeah, I, I went I yeah. went about a week there where I didn't spray them, and that's when all the worms appeared. Now I'm well, spraying again, and I figure I can kill two birds with one stone that way. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you can actually mix your BT in with your liquid fish if you like. Uh, and like you say, you only have to do one spraying, and uh, it'll it'll feed the plants and destroy the worms. Yeah, because at least my squash is starting to come up again. I'm already in the second, second crop of squash. Very good. Very good. Can I grow onions any time of the year now if I can see them? No. I wouldn't recommend it. If you can grow the multiplying onions, but your bigger bulb type onions, they're going to bolt and go to flower before they form much of a bulb. So we're going to hold off until uh, cool weather before we plant more of those. Wait till about October to seed again. Well, if you're going from seed, if you're going to buy the plants, you're probably not going to be able to get the plants till late October, or early November. 
and that's the time, you know, I'm still harvesting onions, but I'm, I sure can't find any more to plant right now. So when do you seed the tomato, I mean, seed the onions for the the thing, in October 15th, like around, or <laughs> well, that? that's, uh, you know, that's that's where the name, the 1015, came from, I think it's so uh, to remind those Aggies when they needed to be planting their seed that probably the best yellow onion ever developed is what they call the 1015 or the super sweet, and that's what that that's where that name came from. It's meant to be seeded around the 15th of October, 1015. Because we're a little bit further south than y'all. That's what I was wondering about. We, our our growing cycle is a little different from everybody else's. Well, it is, Don, but. But but as far as bolting, that has probably more to do with day length than it does with temperature. So uh, yeah. timing-wise, you're probably going to be pretty much on the same schedule that I am. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out how to get the, the, the edge, and, and the edge is always <laughs> blunt. <laughs> yeah, for me it is, too, and sometimes non-existent. But uh, it's, gardening is always a mixture of successes and failures, but a lot of people tell me onions are the best things I grow, so... There's always a line of people wanting to help me uh, help me eat them, so uh, it's it's a great thing to grow. All righty, thank you very much, Bob. You're certainly welcome. Thank you for the call. Uh, next in line is Et. Good morning, Et. Morning, morning, Bob. How are you today? Off to a good start. It's a nice day out there. A little bit of cloud cover hanging around, so it hadn't started getting really hot yet. So hope that lasts until I can get outside. Yeah, okay, I got a couple plant questions and a couple bug questions. Yes, sir. Okay, my uh, my peppers, uh, they look dismal this year. I got bananas and bell peppers. Were they uh-huh. cooler weather? Would they ever come back when it gets cooler weather? Oh yeah, they should. You keep them keep them watered and fertilized, and when this uh, real severe heat breaks, uh, they'll go back to growing and producing for you. In nature, most peppers are perennials that live about three years. So if you can get them okay. through this heat, uh, they should come back into good production for you this fall. Yeah. Oh, the plants look good, except where the deer been munching the tops off of them. So. <laughs> and that's not the fault of the weather. Okay. And uh, uh, strawberries, how how do they reproduce themselves? They make little plantlets. Uh, they put out a little thing called a stolen, and then they form little plants on these little Oh, kind of little shoots that come out to the side. They grow out three or four inches and make a new plant on the end. Okay, so like if you bought strawberries from uh, the grocery store, you can't just put them in the no. dirt and they'll grow? No? No, no. Okay. That's, that's the one fruit. Strawberries are the one fruit that have their seed on the outside instead of on the inside, but that seed is not viable. So sure. nobody tries to harvest it and plant it that way. Okay, great. And uh, crazy ants, I guess that's what they're called. I can't remember the guy's name that, you know, just discover them. And I have them everywhere right now on my patio. Uh, best defense, uh, that's Mesha's Earth? Um, you can use DE, but actually I think liquid spinosad is easier to use and more effective because you can cover a, a bigger area. DE, you know, stops working if it gets watered or gets wet for any reason, but and it takes a little while to kill them, but... If if you want them dead now, spinosad is a safe product to use, and it's a very very good ant killer. Okay, and one last question: uh, brown recluse spiders. I met you all said that Dr. Kirby was once bitten by one. I uh-huh, believe yeah. maybe a early early two thousands. I was believe I was bitten one, 
and they the mark they do leave a scar then oh they they can but if you will uh uh if you get bitten if you know you've gotten bitten immediately start rubbing that wound with comfrey if you have fresh comfrey, comfrey yeah, I, you can I, yeah. You can use the juice. If uh, not, you can actually get it in a, sort of an ointment form called trauma cream, comfrey tom, trauma cream or something like that. And normally, if you treat with comfrey, you will not have a scar from it. But uh, untreated, yeah, they're going to leave a nasty scar yeah. because they, they, just, they just cause that tissue to rot away and your body has to take over and make new. Yeah, because I believe I was bitten. You know, early, in early 2000, I got to like two marks on the side of my leg. Yep. And I, you know, I clean up with, uh, well, I can't remember that, that liquid you call it. Uh, but that, you know, and uh, that's a, and some iodine and, a, you know, a little topical yep. ointment. And, uh, uh-huh. you know, I cleared it up, you know. It was a little painful for at least two or three days, you know. Oh, then yeah. after that, you know, yeah, well. I still got the... Still got the scars. Yeah, so. yeah Dr. Kirby and, got a bite on his wrist, and he went to the best dermatologist in town, who happens to be the same one I go to, and uh, he did the standard medical treatment. He does what's called abrading the tissue, just trimming away as much damaged tissue as he could, and he told him, and he said, Dr. Kirby, I've done everything I can now, but uh, I got him to start rubbing the uh, comfrey on it, and it healed very quickly for him, and uh, the, it okay. stopped spreading. And uh, comfrey's just yeah. amazing stuff, and it's one of the things that it does really seem to work well on is uh, on a on a recluse bite. Okay, and uh, one last thing, that guy about the tomato worms, he yeah. goes out night with a black light. I believe you can they'll light up. Oh yeah. Pretty much. So, yeah, they'll they'll so, shine. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. They will fluoresce and. Uh, um, he, he, that, that's true. He said he had problems with seeing the color green, but at night he could certainly see him, uh, shining brightly out there. So that's an excellent suggestion. E.T., thanks for bringing that up. Okay, Bob, and, uh, thank you for your time. Uh, have a nice day. Maybe we'll have crepe for rain because my rain gauge Amen. ain't gotten about dust and spiderwebs. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the most worthless thing in the garden right now, but, uh, my old old buddy Alton Grimm used to always say, every day we're one day closer to that next good rain. So I'm ready for it to happen, and I know you are too. Get out and have a great oh, yeah. weekend. I know we'll talk again. Uh, Don, let's get our uh, thank you. Let's get our 10:30 break done. We'll come back and start with Elizabeth. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Golly, the time's flying by this morning, as it always does, talking to good friends and good gardeners. We're going to talk to Elizabeth, Wade, and Cynthia. Elizabeth is first. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Bob. We appreciate you and your program. Um, I appreciate your call. (laughs) Thank you. Beautiful manners. Thank you. I have um, mesquite trees in my yard, and I think there are a bunch of sprouts coming up from them. How do okay. I easily get rid of them, please, the sprouts? And what you have, you have some big old established trees and just have some sprouts coming up around? No, no. Throughout the yard, there are sprouts coming up away from the trees. Okay. Um, you're, that, that sounds more like we satch and mesquite, but well, I... I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. It's thorny and ugly. Yeah. So whatever you think it is, I'm sorry. <laughs> And the best way, you, since it's in your yard, 
you can't yes. use the same treatment that we would in a pasture. In a pasture, I can cut it off, put a little diesel on it, follow it up with a little molasses. In your yard, your best bet's going to be probably a grub and hoe and try to, you know, cut it off three or four inches below ground level if you can. Um, okay. It tends, the problem with mosquitoes, it tends to be very persistent. Uh-huh. It's unusual that you would have uh, have sprouts. Uh, do you have any big trees, or is this all just sort of second growth coming up? There are big trees, but the sprouts aren't near the big trees. Okay, well, that, that makes a little more sense. They, they could be seed sprouting, which means it will be a lot easier to get rid of with okay. just uh, one or two tries. The, the thing about big mesquites is they actually release something from their roots that keeps the seed from germinating. That's why you rarely ever see new trees sprouting un- underneath a big old tree, but a lot of people mistakenly think they're going to get rid of their mesquite cutting down their big tree, and then that allows the seeds to sprout everywhere. So uh, these being out away from big trees, they probably are seed sprouting, and if you can get them before they get very large, um, it's it's not too hard to do. It takes a little strength, and I'd definitely be doing it early morning or late evening, but I'd be out there with my grub and hoe trying to get down three or four inches, and you'll probably eliminate the majority of them on your first try. Okay. Would the vinegar and orange oil mixture work on that? No. It'll burn the foliage off of them, but they'll come right back out. They are such a tough, tenacious plant, as I'm sure you've discovered. They're not even noticing that there's a drought on. They're the most vigorous, happy plants out there, and vinegar orange oil would definitely burn the foliage back, but then that sprout right back just as just as they always do. If this were not in your yard, uh, like I say, I would, uh, um, you know, just cut them off at ground level, put a cup of uh, diesel fuel on top of it, and then follow it up with some molasses. But you're not going to really want to do that in your yard because that'll also kill the grass and other things around that area. And since these are probably seedlings coming up, I don't think it's going to be that hard to eliminate them. Okay. Thank you so much for your help. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you for your kind words and your call this morning. Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye. You as well. All right. Uh, next in line is Wade. Good morning, Wade. Morning. Good morning. I have a question about, uh, you talked, I think, last week about um, fire ants and, uh, and the potted plants. We have some on our back porch, and right. they are filled with uh, fire ants because uh, of the water issues right now. Yeah, and you mentioned spinosad, I think, but it wasn't the soap. It was the was it just the liquid? Yeah, it's just uh, you could use the spinosad soap, but um, uh, the soap's not really enhancing things in any way. Straight spinosad, you use a little bit less of it, and uh, uh, should be just almost instantly effective. I mean, two hours from now, all the ants should be dead. The thing about getting straight spinosad is. Uh, <laughs> It, it always seems to be sold under some really weird names, and currently what you're probably going to find in the nursery is something that's called Captain Jack's Dead Bug. Somebody with a very creative mind came up with that sales idea, I guess. But look for Captain Jack's Dead Bug. Mix about two ounces to uh, gal- per gallon of water. Use that to water your plants, and uh, the ants should be dead very quickly. Okay, thanks. And and yesterday, uh, Howard Garrett mentioned uh, the cinnamon. Was that was he using that for fire ants that were getting into his electrical stuff? Yeah, right. 
And uh, I I had forgotten that, but he says that cinnamon is a pretty good fire ant repellent. I don't think it kills them at all, but uh, I, I, who knows what it is that attracts them to uh, the uh, junction boxes and especially where you've got contactors and electrical circuit or something like that. They can get in and do a lot of damage, but uh, cinnamon, it turns out to be a pretty good repellent, but uh, most of the time I want the fire ants dead. I don't want them just going somewhere else. Probably wouldn't work then, like in the potted plants, once you get rid of them to keep them from coming back. It probably works better I, in a drier area, right? I really have no idea. Uh, you're probably right. If you want to give it a try, I'd love to hear back from you. But, uh, again, I don't want to just run them off. I don't want them to just go to the other, next plant in the line. I'd rather, in this case, I'd rather eliminate them. And I think the spinosad's probably going to do a, a good. And spinosad's a very safe product. It's so safe that we give it in another form called Comfortis. We actually give it as an oral pill to our puppy dogs for flea control. And uh, if it's safe enough for my labs, it's safe enough for me to use in the garden. So uh, I, I think it's a good thing to do. But if you, if you give the cinnamon a try, please report back to me on how it works for you. Yes, sir. We've also done some of that uh, DE next to our trees because you know, everywhere where we're checking the water, sticking our finger in, I mean, there are fire ants and all of it. Oh, yeah. So. That's, that's I, not fun, but uh, not at all. when that DE with the sugar it works. Yeah, DE is uh, DE is wonderful, wonderful material. But when it gets wet, it stops working. But that hadn't been much of a problem this summer. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, we we uh, we yeah, not at all. We we've had we put it in some little uh, styrofoam cups and lay them sideways with the sugar around the trees, and uh -huh. it takes a little bit, but that seems to work pretty well with uh when we don't have to you know on the off the back porch and stuff so thanks for that advice well always you are certainly welcome and uh there is that uh you know get a fresh bag but this stuff called come and get it that's another thing especially during this dry weather you just get out either morning or evening scattered around that little bitty bag will do up to a quarter of an acre and it's based on it's what they call a preferred food and the ants take it take it back to the mound and feed the queen and uh as they say everybody dies so that's another thing that will work well in your yard this summer if you uh get tired or for whatever reason the de's not as effective as you're hoping for look for some come and get it and that'll also work extremely well for you all right wait i appreciate it i think your phone dropped out i hope that was uh, your only question if not call right back and uh now let's go ahead and get our last break of the show done and then we'll come back and talk to cynthia south texas gardening with bob webster news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 can't get the fish in the light and in the water. Oh, yeah. Can't get the fish in the light and in the water. Well, if you're right, Virginia, you ain't got a chance. Make that old pig in this. Can't get the fish in the light and in the water. I can see you can cast a line sitting there by the riverside. Worried about the way you look. Water never seems to Uh, it's another winter, Don. I don't know how you keep coming up with that. Uh, anybody doesn't know when Mr. Don Cooper Stevens is doing the engineering, we uh, 
Most of the time, we will have a at least an outdoor song and usually a fishing song for the last commercial break of the show. And uh, it just kind of makes us realize that we wish we were fishing, but at least we can think about it. Thank you. All right, uh, back to the phone lines. And uh, I believe that Cynthia is, uh, Don tells me Cynthia is the only one holding. We have time for probably three more calls. So uh, if anybody wants to uh, give a call, you know the number, 210-599-5555. Right now, it's Good Morning, Cynthia. Good morning. Good morning. I think it's too I think it's too hot to even fish today. <laughs> I guarantee you. Yeah, I'd, I'd be. I'd want to be in the shade of a big tree. But on the other hand, if you had a, a boat with a good cover, that that water, it cool breeze coming off. I did that over in Louisiana a few weeks ago, and uh, it was very pleasant. We're still eating lots of good fish, but uh, yeah, I I wouldn't want to just be standing on the shore casting. Uh, if I were fishing this time of year, it probably would be with the trout with a fly fly rod up in Wyoming. And, uh, yeah, that I would take. But, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to stand on the edge and cast, bait cast this time of year. No, stand in one of those cool streams up in Colorado. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So my project is uh, I've got a couple of those big red yuccas, Hesperello. Yeah. Uh-huh. And... I would like to have a bunch more of them. Can I propagate those from seed? Yes, you most certainly can. As a matter of fact, uh, they grow very easily from seed. Have you ever broken open one of those seed pods they form? Yes, I have. I've got a yeah. bunch of them collected. But oh, I've yeah. never seen new new plants growing in the area, you know, whether it's fall. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that's an interesting statement because i don't think i have ever have either but uh i remember gosh one of the first things i did uh years ago when i first came down to this area and worked with alton up in the hill country and and the seeds are kind of funny they're like little black tiddlywinks they're just stacked one on top of another on top of another and i planted them in seed trays and i got almost a hundred percent germination and got beautiful little plants so um i don't uh uh, I don't think you'll have any problem starting more of them from seed. I would either use, you know, small pots or if you're, you know, economy-minded, you can even take something like a, a styrofoam egg carton and punch a hole in the bottom of each one of those things, fill it with soil, and just stick one or even two of those seeds in each little section, keep them watered, and they should sprout and grow for you in about three or four weeks. I would protect them through the first winter, and uh, by next spring, they should be big enough to plant outside and greatly expand uh, your garden area. Okay, and I'm north of Dallas, so you think it'd be hardy to put out that first spring? I think that, yeah, I think that they would be ready to go out, but now if you're north of Dallas, you are going to have to cover them in a really cold winter. Uh, we got through, some of them got a little damage, but came right back out. When we were in the single digits in the hill country two years ago, and I saw a little cosmetic damage, but nothing too serious. But uh, um, So are you like Sherman Denison, or are you you way up north of Dallas? I'm uh, 40 miles north of Dallas in okay. northwest Collin County. Okay, yeah. Uh, you're going to probably have one or two nights a year. You might want to throw a little insulate over them in typical weather, but uh, I, I I don't think you're going to have any problem growing them up there. 
Okay, so maybe protect them for the first year or two, because I don't have any damage on any of them from the heavy freezes we've had the last few years. Well, I, I would... down below zero. Yeah, I, I would do more based on what the low temperature is forecast to be. They're going to be perfectly hardy down into the teens uh, by their by their first year. By the time they've spent a year in the ground, they're going to be perfectly hardy down into the teens. But whether they're a year old or 20-year-old, if you're, again, forecast to get into single digits or even below zero, I would cover them even if they were 10 years old. Okay. All right. Are they agaves? No. No. Hesperalo is a genus in and of itself. It's not related to regular yuccas, and it's not related to agaves either one. I'm not even sure what their closest phylogenetic relative is. I'd have to go back and, you know, look at the family and look at a few other things. But uh, they're they're not closely related to any of the uh, other succulent garden plants that we commonly use. Okay. And do you find the yellow and the dark red as hardy as that salmon pink red? That's a great question. I think that they are equally hardy, but I don't think they're as vigorous. I think that salmon one is the most vigorous grower of the bunch, but uh, the uh, uh, the yellow one came back for us with no problems after the single-digit weather, and uh, I don't have any brake lights, which is the red one in, uh, in my landscape, but uh, uh, everywhere that I see it around San Antonio, they came through just fine. I just think that the uh, the old salmon one is by far the most vigorous, fastest growing clone. So, uh, but hardiness? No, I think the hardiness is going to pretty much be equal. Yeah, and the most flowers too just um, blooms like crazy. Yeah, they are um, wonderful, wonderful plants. And you don't think that it needs stratification, the seeds need stratification in the refrigerator or anything like that? To I, did, I did not find it at all necessary. Maybe I got lucky, but um, I've, I've never found that to be necessary. All right. Okay. Thank you so much for the information. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for the call today. All right. Uh, goodbye. Uh, let's see. Uh, Don, was that Kathy? Or is Kathy next? Yeah, Kathy is next, and then it'll be Paul. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning. I wanted to ask if there is a uh, a good amount of water to put on our zoysia palisades is the uh-huh. type that we have. Uh, we have a, a automatic uh, sprinkler system, and we've been setting it for one time a week for an hour and a half at a time. And I didn't know with the drought if we needed to make sure it gets two inches of water a week or more. Or An inch and a half should be adequate, uh, you know, assuming, and I'm sure you are, you know, staying with your organic fertilizers and you've been on this oh, yeah. thorough deep watering. So I would judge by your grass. I, uh, Zoysia is a, is a good hardy grass. If it looks like, if it starts getting gray-green, uh, rather than its usual kind of vibrant green, you might increase the length of time. But uh, I think uh, the, what I would do is put out, you know, a little straight-sided uh, cup or something in the area where you're watering, and I suspect that you're putting out about an inch and a half of water, and that should be adequate even in the kind of heat we have. So I, I guess what I'd say is water long enough to put out at least an inch and a half of water, 
and that should be perfectly adequate to maintain the Palisades. Okay, and we've had it in place for about uh, four, almost five years now, and it, so it's well, it seems to be well established, but here yeah. lately it seemed to be a, a little yellowing, just a tiny bit, not much, but not as good, uh, as well green as what it had been. So I thought, and, well, is that from lack of water? And we do fertilize a minimum of two times a year with growing green. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you've probably heard me talk about what we call the compensation point, and that's how much energy a plant has to expend just to stay alive. And anything above and beyond that, it can put into growth, can put into flowering, put into fruiting or whatever. The compensation point has been so high that uh, your, I think your palisades, like many other things in the landscape, they're struggling just to exist. And uh, water is probably not going to make a whole lot of difference. What that grass really needs is for the, the temperatures just to back off a little bit. So I, I think your yellowing is just kind of a stress-related thing rather than being due to lack of water. And uh, it sounds to me like you're doing, you're doing very well with it. And if it started turning a gray-green, if it started, uh, if it got to the point when, uh, one other way to know how you're doing on water is to walk across the, the lawn and then look back. If you can see your footsteps, it may be getting a little bit too dry. But if the grass has resilience that it, you know, it springs back up, which I think you will find yours does, then mm -hmm. the yellowing is just strictly due to the heat, and you're not going to overcome that with extra water. It should clean up again. Yeah, go ahead. And putting any growing green on it right now, would that stimulate new growth and be susceptible to the heat and drought? Yes and no. It would, uh, if the compensation point is lower, where the plant has a little bit of energy left over, growing green would help it put on more growth. Would that cause any problems or be more susceptible? No, it would be just fine. When is the last time that you fertilized? Uh, I think it was in April. Okay, so it's been three months. Uh, it'd be fine to put some uh, fertilizer on any time. That's not going to cause any problems. But until the temperature drops a little lower, until the compensation point drops a little lower, you're not going to see a lot of change. You're not going to see a lot of new growth. But by feeding now, you definitely will be sure the nutrient is out there so that the plant can put on some good growth when, uh, when we get a little bit more accommodating environmental conditions. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you for the call. And let's finish up today's calls with Paul. Good morning, Paul. Morning, how are you? Off to a good start. It's going to be a nice day out there, but uh, another pretty warm one. So not complaining. It's uh, it's the last day of July, and in August, it's probably going to start getting a little better. Yeah, I will. Uh, listen, uh, I got a fig tree I planted about three feet tall about three months ago. Uh-huh. And I, I read that you don't you want it where you have good water runoff. And I was dripping it, water on it when I first planted it, and then I... About every three weeks, I drip it for about 24 hours. But I keep getting um, brown leaves fall yeah, off, it, and then I'll no, have you, green leaves. You, you need to be watering a lot more often than that. You need to be watering at least weekly. Figs are a plant that they'll survive getting pretty dry, but uh, they don't like it. If you want to get good growth and good fig production, it needs a thorough soaking at least once a week. Um, okay. Maybe maybe even a little more than that. Uh, every three weeks, yeah, the, the plant's going to survive, but it's not going to be happy. 
Well, when I, I, when I was thinking when I read it, it needs good water runoff. Like maybe it don't want too much water, you know. But well, no, it'd be uh, hard to overwater a fig. Fig is one of the thirstiest plants you will ever have. It will survive drought, but uh, I can't imagine ever giving a fig too much water. 